0: better to lead the way in desegregation in Africa than American corporations who have recently had to do this in the United States. So this is what we're talking about, the 1970s, and they're coming off of a basically a 10 year period in which they've been already pushed by activists in the United States and the United States government to desegregate. From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Ben Spohn.
1: And I'm Amaris Williams. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections.
0: My name is Jessica Ann Levy, and I, for the last year, have been a fellow, the Jefferson Scholars slash Hagley Library Dissertation Fellow at the Hagley Library. Finishing up my dissertation.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the project that is now your dissertation and presumably in the future is going to be a book on all of our shelves?
0: Yes. Um, So the dissertation is titled Black Power, Inc. uh, Global American Business and the Post Apartheid City. And it traces the evolution of black empowerment politics. Um, which include both government and also corporate-sponsored programs promoting black entrepreneurship in the U.S. and Africa in the late 20th century.
1: So tell me a little bit more about what black empowerment means in this context, in this moment in time. Yes,
0: yeah, so this was a lot of what my dissertation was actually, is figuring out what black empowerment means in, to different people, in different contexts, um, you know, particularly, I think the word itself, relating to the title "Black Power," evolves out of a particular moment in U.S. history—a very contentious moment in U.S. history where there's a lot of racial tensions um, and there's a perceived rise in black militancy, often associated with Black Power. And so, Black empowerment um, is, in many ways, um, linked to older forms of racial uplift politics. I trace its um, roots, in particular, to various forms of christian ideologies the protestant work ethic Um, but what i think is really interesting about it is the way that it's also able to to link these ideologies with the kind of animation um, that that the black power moment had and to appeal um, to a wide um, audience so so black empowerment was about solving um, an economic crisis it was about solving this question of jobs and unemployment um, that many americans were facing but particularly black Americans were facing in the 1960s and that helped to inspire part of the the black power activism um, and even you know the rebellions in many cities um, many of them had economic underpinnings Um, and black empowerment um, was in many ways posited as um, by its by its by the people its proponents as a kind of productive response instead of rioting instead of black militancy um, the proponents of black empowerment wanted people to do things like job training. They wanted people to focus on economic development. They wanted people to focus on entrepreneurship, which they um, thought would provide both a kind of economic basis uh, for the black community, um, but also a kind of uh, a broader both moral and personal kind of self-fulfillment. Um, so the proponents of black empowerment really talked about providing um, dignity um, to, uh, to black people.
1: Can you tell us a story or something that can help us understand a little bit more about what that sort of empowerment looked like mm-hmm. on the ground? What are some of the programs that you look at? Give us some examples of that.
0: Yeah, so the main figure in my dissertation is a reverend um, by the name Reverend Leon Howard Sullivan. He he has many, many, many stories. I think you know one of my favorite, actually, in terms of thinking about black empowerment, how black empowerment fits into this you know, various um, this political moment is the founding of his first job training program called Opportunities Industrialization Centers, which is one of the main black empowerment programs that I looked at. And this program um, got a lot of funding from the U.S. government um, and eventually spread to over a hundred different chapters in the United States and Africa. Um, but it started in a um, abandoned police station in North Philadelphia and it's really kind of interesting to think about this space in which OIC started, um, both the the kind of broader geography of North Philadelphia, um, which when Sullivan first arrived there in the 1950s, he describes it as a neighborhood of um, abandoned houses and sort of dilapidated, um, you know, construction there's there's rising unemployment there's a real sense of hopelessness at least in his telling of, of this space there's also rising policing concerns and um, there's so in some ways black empowerment is a story that's related to what other scholars have talked about the rise of the carceral state um, so there's increased policing of um, black and brown people in various cities across the United States but what was interesting is I found that so that um, the story of this uh, particular police station um was that the city had abandoned it um, in order to make room for a larger police station to go along with the increased policing, Um, but they still had this police station that was now unoccupied, and as a result, Sullivan and um, several other black ministers were able to negotiate a deal with the city where they leased this police station for $1 a year, so basically for nothing. um, They were able to get this police station and they revamped it. They painted it um, various bright colors. They got donations from various businesses to bring in equipment. Um, this was to provide the basis for their job training program. Um, and the physical transformation of this space, I think, is really important to thinking about the kind of transformation that OIC and various black empowerment programs are trying to instill in participants. That it was that by being surrounded by these bright colors and by new kind of modern industries. So they partnered with companies like General Motors and IBM. Um, this was supposed to inspire black youth to um, you know, do better with their lives. Um, but my favorite part about this, um, and I think you know, both highlights um, some of the kind of problems or the, the limitations of black empowerment thinking, um, particularly in relation to the carceral state, is that Sullivan specifically leaves the old jail cell in the police station. And he has this great quote um, by which to motivate participants in which he says, um, you know, if you don't kind of participate in the job job training program, if you don't, you know, do your best to become employed and follow along with this kind of Protestant work ethic, this is potentially the alternative. And kind of alluding to um, the declining opportunities for, um, you know, for, for black, uh, young, young black people in North Philadelphia.
1: If you were a person enrolled in one of these job training programs or black empowerment programs, what would your experience have been?
0: Yeah, so people, the programs really, really varied, um, and it depended on who they were partnering with, but generally, Sullivan, like many um, people who are particularly uh, working in cities at this time, were really concerned about the kind of beginning of deindustrialization and and the kind of Um, leaving of large factory jobs, which black communities, again, you know, kind of suffered the the brunt of. And um, so many of these programs, interesting, even though they were partnered with, um, you know, companies like General Motors, were actually focused on, um, you know, what at the time were considered kind of new technologies for the uh, service sector jobs. Um, So for GM, for example, they uh, worked with a program to train um, black auto mechanics and um, GM dealers. Um, in cities. Um, and, you know, it's interesting in terms of thinking about the motivation behind these programs that on one hand, this was a way for companies like General Motors to keep open our, I think, our you know, really great example is uh, Gulf Oil um, opened up several uh, Gulf OIC service stations in um, cities, including Philadelphia, including L.A. Um, and in part, this was a way for these companies to keep open service stations in areas where various, the previous owners of these service stations, uh, many of whom were white, had fled to the suburbs and had so these were abandoned stations um, and so this was in many ways a kind of early redevelopment of the kind of post-industrial city except in the 1960s. A really crucial part of this program was that before you could enter into any of these um, specialized vocational programs, so before you could do the the golf program or um, you know another option was that OIC opened up a garment uh, uh, producing factory. Um, which, um, and, and the program was in some ways gender segregated or people were pushed to certain positions, so a lot of the garment factory workers were women. Um, but before you could do any of this, you had to, all OIC participants had to participate in what was called the OIC Feeder Program, which really was something that I think distinguished this, or at least OIC propounded that this distinguished their program. Um, and the feeder program was in many ways kind of combining a lot of the politics of Racial uplift and various Christian values and gendered norms, um, and in the sense it was it was advertised as a attitude or a behavioral program where it was teaching people what it meant to be an employee, um, and so there they would focus things like on dress code and on you know behavioral modifications like showing up to work on time, um, and so. There was a lot of kind of psychological research, educational research at this time regarding, you know, who, who what, so whether or not black people were, and other kind of minorities, um, you know, needed to do to be able to racially integrate, um, needed to be able to do to join a company like GM and Golf, sort of make these sort of behavioral modifications. Um, So this was a really kind of important part of the program.
1: I imagine that something like that met with some pushback
0: Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's really interesting. Um, the records themselves are not revealing in terms of, you know, most of the participants themselves um, express kind of gratitude at being able to be part of this program and, um, and I think one of the ways, um, so you do get some pushback, you do get some people kind of, particularly those looking in on the OIC from the outside, critics of OIC who are not necessarily participants in the program, you know, talking about the ways in which black people don't need to change in order to be employable. Um, but one of the things that, and this kind of goes back to the, the thinking about the ways in which these kinds of black empowerment programs um you know capitalized on this kind of surge in black uh, power politics and black power black um, identity um, was that often these kind of attitudinal programs were all accompanied by um, stuff on black history, and so there was a kind of respect uh, a long tradition of black respectability politics that kind of tied um, dressing nicely, tried tied kind of comportment and behavioral education to um, what it meant to be a black man and a dignified black man. Um, And so what you actually got people talking about in these programs alongside the kind of dressing nicely and kind of showing up for work was actually that this was a space in which they became proud of being black. And so they were tapping into a kind of black pride rhetoric um, in a really kind of innovative way. Um, So there, there are other... Um, other people working in industrial relations, um, labor relations, there's a developing field of human relations at this time that are thinking about employee behavior and thinking about um, how to control the workplace through kind of um, psychological changes. But what was innovative about OIC and these kinds of black empowerment programs is they were able to link in a way that was very effective for employers those kinds of changes to black pride in a way that seemed, um, you know, to have, that that people responded to positively, actually, um, so that it didn't seem like somebody was kind of coming down and, um, you know, basically implementing what were considered white norms, the, the kind of, you, you have this white corporate culture that people are in some ways imbibing, and yet it was framed and it was taught through... Um, and alongside the lens of this is actually what it means to be a respectable black man. This is what it means to gain your dignity um, as a black man rather than the kind of figure of the black militant which we often think of like the Black Panthers. um, Sullivan would say, Sullivan ends up becoming um, a board member of General Motors. He ends up, you know, he's a black executive his kind of, the epitome of black power for him, the epitome of what it meant to be a dignified black man was to be an executive in a business suit. And so he was teaching that to the kind of, and and embodying that to to the people that came through OIC.
1: So you've talked so far, I think, about the post-industrial part of the title of your dissertation, Post-Industrial City. I'd like you to take us now to the post apartheid city. Yes. um, Because I know that this is a transnational project. So tell us about that side of things.
0: Yes. So, uh, one of the things that's really interesting is that pretty early on, so, OIC is founded in 1964. And in 1969, um, the US government decides that this is an interesting program to promote to Africa as part of a broader effort to expand American commerce. Um, so Africa is being talked about it by the U.S. Department of Commerce at this point as the new frontier for American business. Um, this is kind of an often forgotten chapter in American business history. Um, and one of the things that they encounter is resistance by Africans to white American corporations kind of coming um, to Africa um And so OIC um, and black entrepreneurs like Sullivan, in many ways provide this kind of nice mediator um, and help to kind of link American commercial, broader American commercial expansion with this idea of black empowerment. So rather than um, being neo-colonialists, which um, uh, Ghanaian President uh, Nkwame Nkrumah uh, famously accused the United States of being kind of neo-colonial. People like Sullivan um, and his contemporaries, uh, another guy Harold Sims at Johnson Johnson, tout American companies as helping to promote black empowerment through their support of organizations like OIC, which they bring to to Africa. Um, so throughout the kind of um, 1970s, um, OIC, similar to the ways in which OIC partnered with. American corporations in the United States. OIC partners with various U.S. corporations in um, various countries in Africa, including in Kenya, where they work with General Motors on the first GM plant um, in outside of Nairobi. They agree to contract to help train workers. Um, there's uh, um, I'm forgetting other examples, but um, yeah, there are various sort of examples of these kinds of partnerships. Um, where the question of apartheid comes up is obviously in relation to South Africa. Um, and South Africa and American involvement in Southern Africa, which at this time is still under white minority rule, becomes a really kind of political hot potato for um, for the US government, but also for American businesses, um, where it's not enough to say, oh, we're supporting these kind of job training programs. Or in some instances, American businesses are not supporting these kinds of programs in South Africa because of the state of apartheid. Um, and so what you really see is the ways in which black empowerment and American corporate support for black empowerment um, become becomes this response and kind of really coalesces in the kind of struggle over the U.S.'s role with South Africa. Um, so on one hand, um, the kind of history has been we have. Activists um, who are promoting boycotts and sanctions and basically kind of carrying forth the the neo-colonial line, which is American businesses should just get out of South Africa. They should leave altogether. They're only hurting. They're only working to fuel this apartheid system. Um, And instead, you have these American companies building on their experiences of promoting things like OIC in the U.S. and other parts of Africa saying, no, we can actually be a force for positive change. Um, And so... um, Again, Leon Sullivan actually plays a major role in this, um, joining the Board of General Motors um, and, you know, kind of moving a little bit away from OIC, he develops this set of this corporate code of responsibility, um, which are a set of principles that come to be known as the Sullivan Principles. And um, they um, outline basically what it would mean for American business to play a positive role in fighting apartheid in South Africa, including things like supporting black business, supporting affirmative action programs, providing benefits for black employees and their families, uh, many of the kinds of things that businesses had done in the United States, but doing them in South Africa.
1: So can you tell me a little bit about, um, I know you've largely been through writing here, working yes. on the dissertation, working through all of these ideas, but I know that you've dug into the collections here and there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So um, two of, I think, the collections that have been most helpful for me here are the National Foreign Trade Council records and um, the U.S. uh, Commerce records in helping to provide a better sense of the ways in which U.S. business executives were thinking about Africa and thinking about South Africa in particular at this time. Um, It's very interesting to see um, how much South Africa permeates the discussions of the National Foreign Trade Council in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, South Africa, most Americans can maybe put it on a map. It's, it's you know, at the, the kind of southern tip of, of the continent. But I, I think we forget how important this particular site was for American business um, at this time. So South Africa had the highest rate of return um, by far of any country in the world, um, in part due to the apartheid system, which kept labor costs really low, but also due to the fact that South Africa, um, uh, the mineral industry there produced, um, in addition to kind of gold and diamonds, um, was the source of a number of crucial minerals that were actually vital to producing nuclear weapons, producing um, for the U.S. military. And so was a huge concern both for the United States government and, um, but also for American businesses as well, as they really didn't want to lose access um, to this very kind of crucial source of profiting, source of resources. Um, and so this was, it, it. in many ways, kind of helped to bring various business leaders together on the question of Africa and to really form, um, you know, if not a whole continental-wide policy, but a South Africa-specific policy. Um, and so I do this a lot in my dissertation with thinking about the role that the Sullivan Principles played. Um, So the Sullivan Principles ended up being signed by over 100 American companies, um, which is quite a lot for, and this, you know, it wasn't through an organization um, in particular, but it brought these executives kind of together on a specific policy issue. Um, a foreign policy issue, actually, which is one of you know the few times that American businesses come together over a particular foreign policy issue. but you see kind of the compare you, you can also go through the National Foreign Trade Council records and the US Department of Commerce Records and see the way in which these other organizations had uh, were were talking about this issue. Um, and one of the things that 's interesting is the ways in which they've kind of frame Africa more broadly. Um, both in terms of economic problems, but also it's a political problem for them. And it's really them trying to reconcile with these kind of various demands for African nationalism. Um, So earlier when they're dealing um, outside of South Africa and other parts of post-independent Africa, you know, they're really concerned. A number of African countries are talking about, um, you know, you need a certain percentage of businesses um, operated by black by Africans by black people Um, and they they kind of see this as a political thread this is not a system in which they're you know used to operating and the solution that they come up with is to help use black Americans black American executives to help mediate um, the kind of racial question in Africa Um, so what does that look like so what that looks like is, um, you know, in some instances you have, you know, black American managers coming over and um, talking about the experience that they had in the United States. Um, so Harold Sims, who's a, a vice president of Johnson & Johnson, is a really great example of this. And he kind of becomes the main ambassador for Johnson & Johnson in Africa um, as they're trying to kind of expand their operations. And you know he'll say, well, look, I can show you, I'm living proof of the example that my company can um, and will hire black people and put them in leadership positions um, such as you know the vice president Um, he actually writes at one point to um, i'm forgetting which minister but a minister in south africa actually a white Government minister and says, you know, who better to lead the way in desegregation in Africa than American corporations who have recently had to do this in the United States? So, this is we're talking about the 1970s and they're coming off of a basically a 10 year period in which they've been already pushed by activists in the United States and the United States government to desegregate. And now they're using that experience to kind of lead to say, you know, we're not the Europeans um, and also to say to black South Africans, we're not the white, you know, white South African businesses, we actually have um, evidence that we um, can racially integrate. And we have these affirmative action programs that we've been working with. Um, and we have these job training programs that are already built in, that we're partnered with. And look, some of them like OIC are led by black Americans, partner with us.
1: How does this fit in to the larger geopolitical context and the Cold War?
0: Yes. Um, so one of the thing I think that's interesting, uh, one of the things that my work is trying to do is obviously, um, you know, the Cold War plays a huge role here, and Americans um, are very concerned about Soviet influence on, on the continent of Africa. And in some ways, um, you see corporations mimicking the strategies pursued by the United States government. So the United States government deployed various black ambassadors. There was a very famous um, black jazz ambassador program where we sent jazz musicians across Africa, across the world, to tout American democracy in this context. One of the things I think my work reveals, however, is that in some ways, um, you know, the questions that American business leaders were concerned with didn't not necessarily have to do with the Soviets and had to do with communism. Had actually a lot more to do with questions of African nationalism and then African socialism, um, but with questions of of racial struggles. Um, and so it's really interesting actually here to see there's a, there's I think somewhat of a shift about thinking about U.S. Africa pro- policy more broadly is not just being kind of boiling down to the Cold War, but actually it being about American commercial interests on the continent and not just political interests, and then where politics is concerned, um, that in some ways the kind of struggles, um, and American business leaders were making these connections themselves were much more analogous to the kinds of struggles that they had in um, urban cities in the United States, that American business leaders are interpreting the situation, particularly when you get to a place like South Africa and apartheid, In a lens that's compared to the civil rights movement and not actually, oh, we're really worried about, um, you know, the Soviet Soviet businesses competing with us when they talk about competitors. They're they're you know, actually more interested in in China and they're interested in other European competitors competing with them for markets um, in Africa. And and how do we how do we expand our, our footprint in terms of markets on the continent?
1: Yeah, I ask about the Cold War just because it seems to me, based on my understanding of this period, that uh, a successful program like this that demonstrates on the global stage that America is dealing with its racial issues in a non-explosive way, in a way that aligns very neatly with the capitalist message yes. could be a bit of a PR coup for the U.S. government. Oh, absolutely.
0: And, and and it's extremely um, in terms of talking about the relationship between linking free market politics and, um, and black liberation. And um, what's really interesting is you see this um, happen with black business organizations on the African continent. Um, so in South Africa, one of the major beneficiaries of the Sullivan Principles is a black business organization by the name of NAFCOC, the National African Federated Chamber of Commerce. And um, they end up receiving uh, a lot of money and sponsorship from American corporations who are signed on to the Sullivan Principles, um, who are attempting to kind of push back against sanctions and divestment activists. Um, but what's interesting is there's a dialogue that, that kind of begins between these American corporate executives and these black South African business people And the black uh, South African business people take up the the discourse of free enterprise and free market politics um, to fight apartheid, actually. They start seeing apartheid as a regulatory regime, which it was. It restricted where they could have businesses, whether they could own property. Um, And so they say, well, look, we want the American system of free enterprise, um, which means we want to get rid of these restrictions. Now, what's interesting is they have different views on what free enterprise means. Um, in some ways, their their views are much more linked to, I think, um, black activists in the United States are advocating for things like reparations or affirmative action in the sense that say, well, we don't just want you to get rid of the rules. History has created this situation in which we're extremely disadvantaged. We ha- don't have the same capital as large American corporations coming in. So we want free enterprise plus you know, we want help and aid from the government, which is slightly different than the views that... Um, American business leaders are touting. Worthy. But but they, there is this kind of coalescing around the ideal being a kind of free market system. Um,
1: is this a story about black empowerment advancing American business and corporate interests? Or is it a story about American business and corporate interests advancing black empowerment?
0: Or both? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, so I tend to lean towards... Um, particularly when you get to the 1990s and um, and the 2000s in, in South Africa's case and you look at the extreme racial inequality that continues to persist. Um, I think, you know, South Africa is even more glaring example of this in the sense that it's, you know, a, a majority um, non-white country and yet, you know, in terms of capital, in terms of who owns the wealth there, it's it's still white corporations, um, decades after South Africa's actually implemented what they call Black Economic Empowerment Legislation, which is a series of regulations that are supposed to guide, you know, businesses along the kind of principles of having Black managers and working with Black subcontractors. And one of the things my work does is to kind of reveal the ways in which um, profits continue to go to corporations despite all of these real programs. Um, and, you know, kind of um, despite, um, you know, I think one of the most interesting ways of looking at this is through kind of like the kind of shifts in businesses towards licensing and subcontracting that seem to be benefiting black businesses because you suddenly have a black McDonald's or you suddenly have um, at one point a bunch of black South Africans buy the Pepsi manufacturing, you know, plant. And this is seen as a, a huge, huge victory for black businesses. They own a Pepsi Manufacturing um, plant, and yet you know they quickly realize that the money is actually not in the manufacturing of Pepsi; it's in you know the branding and all the all the kind of licensing things that the main parent company still owns. And so there there is this real interesting question here about what is power and and what is um, what is ownership. Um, but you know, but at the same time, so so it, I do think I I tend to lean that. In many ways, the kind of ultimate victors here are American corporations, are big multinational corporations. And this is, you know, I think the story of the late 20th century is how, you know, multinational corporations and American multinational corporations in particular have kind of continued to grow and expand despite various social and political efforts to curtail their power. Um, And yet it's not one sided, right? So you also have um, black business people. Sam Matsuyane, who's one of my main characters um, in South Africa, who founded or was a president of the National African Federated Chamber of Commerce for a while. Um, you know, he he starts as the as the son of sharecroppers in outside of Johannesburg in the '40s, and he you know becomes one of the wealthiest and famous black business um, people in South Africa. So there are these kind of individuals. Um, who, who benefit. There are, there are tons of people who participate in the OIC program um, who you know, may not have become executives, but who maybe got a job at a, um, as a, at a local GM dealer um, who I think would argue that Black Empowerment was a success. And so I think there's not a kind of simple story of the winners and losers in terms of Black Empowerment's effectiveness.
1: What do you think of the legacy of these programs
0: has been yeah, so I think I think the legacy has in many ways been um, and, and part of this has to do with going back to the context in which black empowerment came out of um, is thinking about the ways in which black empowerment has increasingly become the only answer for the ways that governments and corporations attempt to deal with these kind of questions and there's kind of been a narrowing of scope. Um, you know, so my, the original epilogue to my uh, dissertation, or the original imagined epilogue to my dissertation, um, I would have talked about Barack Obama going to Kenya um, and talking about bringing, you know, U.S. aid and U.S. assistance in the form of promotion for black businesses. Um, what I do talk about in my current epilogue is, um, you know, actually the extension, even after Sullivan uh, dies, um, there are a number of attempts to kind of recreate um, and sustain some of his programs. So OIC still exists, although it's smaller than it used to be. Um, there's a series of summits between um, Black American and African leaders that are surrounding around economic development questions called the, the Leon Sullivan Summits. Um, but these the attempts, these kind of large-scale Black empowerment kind of programs do seem to have lost a little bit of their energy um, and precisely because I think you know, they came out of a moment in many ways in response to a vibrant kind of international black uh, political unrest um, which kind of helped to give um, urgency to alternative solutions. Um, and, and that hasn't quite seemed to cohere um, in recent years.
1: Do you think there are lessons for our current moment in the story that you follow in your dissertation?
0: Yeah, I mean, so one of the policy kind of lessons I think I've thought about is, uh, you know, when I first started working on this project, I think it's really interesting the ways which we throw out the word empowerment and black empowerment in particular. Um, You know, I've heard actually people talking about, you know, job training programs as the alternative to our current kind of um, uh, crisis, both in terms of political and, and economic crisis. And I think there's a slight warning in my work, I guess, to say that, yes, you know, these programs can benefit some people, um, but they're not the only solution, and they're, um, they're not going to be effective if, if they are the only solution. Well, thanks
1: so much. I think that does it for the questions that I have. Is there anything that you want to add that I didn't ask you about or that you just think is really, like, people should know about this subject or your time here at Hagley or the Jefferson
0: Fellowship? Um, yeah, I mean, so the fellowship here, um, you know, has really been great in terms of allowing, giving me the time to write and to process a lot of these ideas. And um, and particularly, I think, the kind of business side. Um, we often, I think, we often separate the fields of black studies and business history. Um, and one of the kind of main objectives of my work is to bring those two fields together. Um, and I think what's been really interesting about being at the Hagley is kind of, engaging these questions of, you know, what is the corporate form in the late 20th century? What, are, what is business politics? Um, and to recognize that business has a politics um, and business, um, you know, the things that I've learned from, you know, the, the records here um, and kind of been through my work is that business leaders are very aware of, you know, the political context. And that doesn't just mean lobbying in Washington. It does mean that, but, you know, it also means that they're aware of black protests and they're engaged in questions of, of, you know, how to solve the kind of race question, both locally and globally, um, in, in far more extensive ways than I think we've, we've thought about before. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships and search our collections, visit hagley.org/research. That's hagley.org research. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot
1: To listen to more Stories from the Stacks, you can find us at hagley.org slash storiesfromthestacks, all one word or simply subscribe to our feed on iTunes or SoundCloud. Be sure to stay tuned for our new podcast, The Mill Race.